everyone. Welcome to Conservation Chronicles. Welcome back to Conservation Chronicles. We've been away for a while. Uh, this is Mariana, and I'm here with my co-host, Jonah. How's things going, Jonah? Good, good. Uh, uh, <laughs> how do we record a podcast again? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. I feel really out of practice. Um but yeah, we, we're very grateful to um, any listeners who are still with us. Thank you for bearing with us through our hiatus. Uh, as we mentioned before we left, we both had field work to um, attend to. And um, Jonah was in Zambia doing, mm-hmm. his, doing his graduate work. So yeah, we're going to talk about that today and just kind of update you guys on what we've been up to uh, just as a sort of update episode. Um, to bring us back into the fold. Yeah. Um, well, why don't you start off and tell us about what you were up to um, last month? Uh, yeah. So I think you. we have three questions that we're going to ask about each of our work that we're doing just to kind of keep it organized. Um, so why don't you tell us what, the purpose of the study you were working on was? Yeah, so I was working on a pica survey, American pica, uh, down here in northern New Mexico, same same mountains that I do my prairie dog work in, um, up here in the Hemis Mountains. And this is actually the southernmost extent of their range in the U.S. And um, obviously, well, in case anybody doesn't know pica, um, are a higher elevation species and they are very intolerant of heat. So, you know, heat stress is really common with them. And one of the main purposes of our study um, was to determine if, um, if they've been moving. So if they've been moving um, up the mountains mostly, and also just, it's, it was mostly just an occupancy survey, basically. So pretty simple on paper, and the goal is mostly to the goal was mostly um, to visit all of the sites where we knew that there had been pica over the last few years because this was um, uh, my PI uh, was this was his third year here in the Hemis Mountains, and the goal was to revisit all those sites and and determine if they were occupied or not. And some of the sites were. Um, previously occupied and we already knew they hadn't been occupied for a while, but there was still like old evidence. So we're basically looking for evidence of pica, which includes um, scat and hay piles. And of course, if we see them or hear them Um, and we were doing line transects, which if anybody knows what that is, um, or if you don't know what that is, you're walking a line. Ours were 15 meters and it's kind of like a raster. You 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 walk, you move, you walk. Um, it's kind of hard to describe, <laughs> but um, anyway, it's basically what it sounds like—a line transect. And um, it, the reason this work is really important here in the Hemis Mountains is because we don't have a good idea um, of the demographics and um, really of the demographics and ecology of the pika here. We have some idea, but not a very good one. They're they're difficult to study here. Uh, they're not very populous, and um, so that was basically the purpose of the study. And uh, we found some some pretty cool stuff out there, but um, 
yeah, it was just mostly an occupancy survey. That's my long way of saying that, I guess. <laughs> and also, I, you didn't mention that because pica are so sensitive to higher temperatures, like the whole, they're obviously one of their biggest threats is climate change, which is why they'd be moving farther up in elevation in the mountains. Right. Yeah. I didn't explain that very well. So yes, this is, this study is definitely tied to climate change and its effects on um, this really temperature sensitive species. And um, they're what, you know, they're definitely an indicator species for how climate change is changing the ecology out here. And um, so, yeah, that was definitely, that was part of the study as well, especially because uh, right now we're trying to give the park service a better idea about how climate change is affecting the Hemis Mountains specifically, and and of course pika in general as well. Um, we it's really important for us to understand how they're responding to climate change, especially because it's accelerating so quickly. And um, my PI, he's already discovered um, over the years um, shifts in in their in their territories, and a lot of sites that have been abandoned like a lot of pica that have been that have abandoned sites that were previously habitat and are no longer habitat because of climate change so um yeah and i think that if i'm not mistaken that's what has been found in other parts of the rockies as well like throughout mm-hmm. their range yeah exactly so um so my pi eric he's he's done work all across the rockies as well oh, okay. and he's gone yeah so um so yeah, so this this particular these particular mountains are are especially important um, because it's the southern extent of their range, and we just don't know what's going to happen to them out here. And the Park Service uh, has a different idea than Eric had about their populations and about their movements. So we're just trying to reconcile, you know, that information and you know get it to a point where the Park Service has. The, where the park service is making the right decisions in terms of management, because um, it's pretty clear that um, they're 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 basically data deficient out here, and they don't have the information that they need. So that's what that's what Eric is trying to provide for them. It's interesting. Um, recently, I was kind of reading about um, how. Uh, geographic distributions change over time, particularly on the periphery of a species range. And Mm -hmm. uh, there's like conflicting ideas. And I I think it just depends on the ecology of the species. But, you know, I was looking at it for in regard to saddlebill storks, because I was um, doing a paper on distribution changes. And some authors are saying that the per- on the peripheries of the geographic distribution, there those are the whatever subpopulations that will survive while like and become a, a meta population basically. But mm. I f- I also think that for a lot of species it was the other way, especially for the pica, where the peripheries are going to disappear first because it's maybe a little bit more marginal habitat. Um, and I imagine that's probably what's going to happen with, with the pikas because down there in the Southern Rockies, it's going to be warming faster than like, you know, in the Northern Rockies just because of latitude. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the 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 pica. That's exactly what's happening with the pica. So it's you know their range is constricting, and um, when when a population becomes more isolated, it's it's not good for them. They just they can't thrive in that kind of um, isolation. And um, the the cool thing about pikas, what's so great about correlating, you know, pika demographics and and pika range shifts and all that with climate change is that there there are fewer um, there are fewer variables because pika habitat um, is basically abiotic mostly it's it's mostly just talus and that doesn't change with the climate you know the rocks <laughs> don't change with climate and so it's a more permanent sort of um, habitat for them and so you know you you you've eliminated a lot of other you know contingencies or a lot of other questions when it comes to habitat choice and and range shifts and um, you can you can really um, narrow it down to the climate, um, not only the temperature but also moisture and snowpack, um, things like that. So, so yeah. Um, so that was my long-winded purpose of the study I was helping with as a field technician. Um, Jonah is the PI on his study. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, yeah. So we all want to hear about your study. So um, if, uh, I guess, yeah, let's start with what was the purpose? Well, it's going to be anticlimactic. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, well, I've probably mentioned it in the past, but um, my master's research is the first study on the saddlebill stork, which is a very attractive, large stork that occurs in sub-Saharan Africa. And... Like I said, no one's ever studied it before. Basically, all the information that is out there, not all of it, but the majority of the information that's out there is just made up. Like, people just pulled it out of their butt. And um, including the population size estimates, because there's like a couple random counts from a few places, and that's not sufficient to extrapolate across such a huge range so um yeah and because it's just guesswork they just decided that they're of the lowest conservation priority and so when i um sort of to give you a background the origin of this whole idea that i came up with um was when i worked in zambia in 2017 you know these storks are very beautiful and so i like looking at them and then I kind of just became curious about where they're moving because I didn't see any during the rainy season and when I went to look up information that's when I found that there's hardly any information and it's like very vague and the population estimate is any they say oh it's between 10,000 and 25,000 which is a huge number it's like what if it's 10,000 but again those numbers are just made up like and the best, not the best, successful conservation is only going to work, is only going to happen with a scientific basis. And so when someone is just making information up based on some idea, some biased idea they have, it, you know, it can be dangerous because, you know, then you say, okay, this species is not of conservation priority. It's the lowest conservation priority. So then there's not going to be any research on it. And then declines are going to be overlooked, possibly until it's too late. 
-hmm. which is, you know, one of the best examples of that is Asian vulture species. That's what happened. You know, there was a rapid decline and it was almost too late when they realized it because no one was, you know, doing a lot with them because, oh, they weren't, you know, really threatened. So, um, that kind of stuff really irritates me and I think is very inappropriate because, you know, we just study lions and elephants and rhinos to death. And let's be honest, like no one's going to let those species go extinct um, because it's just not socially acceptable and stuff. So, you know, I, I really am passionate about those kind of underdog species and filling knowledge gaps. And so the purpose of my master's study is to sort of create a baseline, um, particularly with about spatial ecology, so movement, um, because one of my observations, and this is sort of what I'm really proud of, one of the things I'm really proud of with my study and that I am excited about it because I get to see the scientific method play out from start to finish because this all started with my observations. So Mm -hmm. seeing the, you know, seeing, not seeing the saddlebills in the rainy season and wondering why. And then during the dry season, seeing only adults and only, you know, fledglings that just left the nest. So where are all the second and third year birds um, that you can recognize because they don't have full plumage where do they go? And so that's what I wanted to know because I suspect that the, these national parks are sort of like a source population and then juveniles disperse to who knows where else. Um, so um, the goal of me going to Zambia, so that was in 2017. So this, I was about two years ago that I remember I pitched the idea to a colleague and we kind of started brainstorming about it and it was a long and arduous journey. Um, but last month I spent, I spent the month of June in Zambia, um, for my first field season. And the objective was to deploy five, um, GPS tracking units on juveniles was the idea because we wanted to look at dispersal and sort of a a larger or broader goal of the study is to use saddlebills to look at wetland connectivity on like a landscape level in Western Zambia, because Western Zambia is characterized by some pretty large wetland networks like the Zambezi river, um, Lua plain, which is where I was, Kafui flats, Kafui river. And I mean, it's a perfect species to act as a flagship for other wetland birds, which basically means because they are, um, you know, attractive and charismatic, they're wetland generalists. So if you're protecting them and their habitat, then it's going to have an effect, a positive effect on other species that share their habitat. And there's a lot of water birds in Western Zambia. So that's sort of the the idea of it. Um, But because, you know, there's, this is the first time anyone's done this for the species there's no precedent um you know i was you know all this was coming from my mind and implementing it in a different country while i'm here and getting funding it was it was really challenging um 
but I was able to get past all those logistical challenges and finally got over there. And um, as things often go, they don't work out the way that you imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Especially in Africa. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. yeah, So that's the background um, about it. So, um, okay. So now let's go back to you now that we've answered those questions. The second question is what was your expectation for, you know, going into this field work? So, um, yeah, so I really wanted to, you know, I've been working with prairie dogs, the Gunnison's prairie dog up here for three years, and I wanted to uh, work with pika for a couple reasons. One, they're just really awesome as, um, as an animal. And two, uh, I wanted to branch out a bit, uh, even though, you know, there, I feel like there are kind of two types of wildlife biologists, you know, there's a, there's the, uh, jack of all trades and then there's the specialist, I guess generalist and specialist is what you would call it. Um, and I, I was never really, um, inclined to be a generalist. I wanted to be a specialist because I just wanted to work with rodents. And and then of course, once I started working with prairie dogs, I just wanted to work with prairie dogs. Um, but I thought I would branch out to try a different species entirely, um, a different order entirely. And I've always kind of wanted to work with lagomorphs, uh, which, which are, you know, rabbits and pika and hares. And yeah. So when, when this opportunity kind of fell into my lap. I was just super excited to work on it. And when I found out how important the research was, especially, um, I just, I just wanted to contribute. Mostly I wanted to contribute to collecting the data we need to understand the pika in the Hemis mountains more carefully. And, um, that's based, I mean, that's what I do as a field technician. Um, I'm really proud of that work. Um, eventually I'd like to do my own projects, but I, I enjoy being able to contribute that way. And I wanted to, um, I wanted to get to know the pika also, uh, not just on a scientific level, but also just for, on a per, for a personal interest. I just wanted to get to know them, uh, the way I got to know the prairie dogs, um, which was kind of an unrealistic expectation because it's not a behavioral study. It's an occupancy study, but, um, yeah, but so I was really excited about that. And, the PI was going to be working with Eric. Um, he's uh, basically a pika expert. He's, you know, one of the biggest names in the field. And I just was, I just felt really lucky to be able to work um, with another like big name. You know, I'd worked with John for a while and um, there's a lot to be said. I mean, you know, some big names in the field haven't really earned it, but John definitely had. And Eric definitely had too. So I was just really excited to learn from them. It was going to be an entirely different methodology. Uh, it wasn't going to be observational. It was going to be collecting a bunch of, you know, different, different types of data. And I was going to learn new skills, um, uh, new tools. I learned how to use a clinometer, which takes about 30 seconds to learn, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I had never used one before. Mm. And, um, we also that we were using other technology that I'd never been exposed to before. So I was really excited just to just to learn all that and to broaden my my skill set to to broaden my species set. 
And so, yeah, that was my, those were my biggest expectations going into the project. Um, and I knew it was going to be a short survey. It was much shorter than it was supposed to be for reasons I'll speak of later, but, um, I, I just wanted to, yeah, I just wanted to learn a lot and it was just a really cool project to be a part of and who doesn't want to work with PICA. Um, I know I do. Yeah. They're just, (laughs) they're so cool. Um, actually one of, um, one of the, one of my fellow field techs, well, she's, I mean, she's, she was serving as a field tech, but she's, she's much more than that. She's, she's definitely a professional, but, um, she was helping with the project and, um, she has actually done some PICA behavioral, she's contributed to some PICA behavioral work, um, helping with projects like that. I think it was in Montana. I can't remember. Um, but you know, she was telling me what she'd learned about PICA behavior and it was just really interesting to learn all that from her as well. And, um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, so that was, yeah, my biggest expectation was just to learn and broaden my horizons. And did you guys, um, go to, well, because last time I was there, I remember we like learned about that there were pikas down there. And so we kind of went to some higher elevation areas where we had read that they were, um, did you guys go to any of those like Pajarito mountain? Yeah. So we were on the mountain right next to Pajarito mountain and, this is so pathetic, but I can't remember the name. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> I think it was San Antonio Mountain. I can't remember, but we were right next to it. And there was a bunch of talus there and there was um, an occupied site we found there. Um, we didn't actually see the pika, but we heard, we heard them. Um, so yeah, but we were up there like where you and I were um, on that one hike. Um, that's how high we were. Um, at, I think that was the highest site that I went to. Um they 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 went even higher. Like they went up on Redondo at some point, not to oh, the peak, wow. I don't think, but they went up to Redondo with um with the Pueblo people escorting them. Um, so that was cool, but I missed it. <laughs> but um, yeah, so yeah, so those those were yeah. Um, I guess before I talk about um, all these vague things I've been alluding to. Um, Let's, I'll ask you the same question. Like, what was your expectation or biggest hope uh, going into this study? I mean, you've, you've mentioned some of it already. Yeah, my hope was to put, to catch at least five storks to put those um, transmitters out. Um, but I expected to catch a lot, actually, um, because the methodology that we kind of, recently switched to um seemed like it was going to make it easy for us to catch them um using spotlights because someone they there's been a couple saddle bills incidentally captured before and using spotlights at night and you know i spoke to these people and they the way they described it was like it was a walk in the park and so i thought and even she thought she told me that i was going to you know come back having caught dozens of saddlebells. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, I'd also never been, you know, I, when I was in Zambia before, I lived in Kafui National Park, which is sort of like West Central Zambia. But I'd never been to Lua Plain National Park, which is all the way west along the Angola border. And the carnivore program that I worked on also has a 
you know, that Lua is part of their study area. So I knew the people from there and knew people that worked there. And so, you know, they would talk about it. And I knew a lot about the park and I had this expectation on based on what they had described. Um, but little did I know planning this over the last two years that just coincidentally, my fieldwork would coincide with, um, the worst drought in 40 years. Oh no. <laughs> Cause like I said, this entire area is characterized by a lot of water, um, very seasonal flooding from December to May, which is why I chose it as a study area because that means there's a lot of saddleable storks and yeah, it just didn't pan out that way. Um, I also expected, I, I didn't, well, yeah, I just expected to be more successful than I was, which, you know, not that I left not having, you know, answered some questions and filled some knowledge gaps, but it's just not the questions that I thought I would be answering, um, which, like I said, you know, it never, for me at least, it never works out the way I think it's going to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I, di- I expected, I didn't expect my challenges over there to be related to catching storks. Because like I said, I thought that that was going to be a walk in the park. I expected my challenges to be all having to do with logistics because I was going to be very remote. I wasn't, I was going to have access to internet at someone else's camp, but not at the camp that I lived at. No, you know, phone service. Um, I, I just didn't know anything about, I didn't know what it was going to look like where I was living. Like I learned that some of the people that I was coordinating with logistics on, you know, unless you asked a very specific question, you weren't getting the information. So I didn't, I didn't know what the camp was going to look like. So I ended up ring and I didn't know what to expect with the field work. And I like to be overprepared, but I brought way too much excess gear that I thought, you know, I might use this. And of course it's, that's part of a pilot, you know, season. You, you don't know how things are going to go. And and of course now I do. Um, But I just expected to be more actively, working instead of sitting around waiting for a stork to do what I wanted. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 Wow. That's interesting that you, you had a drought because we had, um, we were expecting drought this year and we didn't get it. And so that kind of changed, um, the, the data we got. It's, it, I think most places in the United States this winter and spring, got more rain than people have seen in a long time. San Diego, I wish I was here because I've never lived here when they had so much rain and and Mm -hmm. flooding. Maine, I I just got back from Maine. They said that it's just been a super wet winter and spring. Um, Texas, I know we had a lot of rain, but over there it was the opposite. So however those uh, whatever... The cycle. <laughs> I need yeah. to take a meteorology course. Yeah. <laughs> but the whatever, the yeah. cells. 
<laughs> the weather cells. Yeah. <laughs> they switched this year, I guess. <laughs> yeah, they switched. Yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. So, um, so what, what, you know, you, you said your expectations, but what happened? Basically tell us how the experience was and how it didn't meet those expectations or did. Yes. Yes. So, um, the only thing that met my expectations were, uh, that the pica were awesome and that the PI was like super good at what he did. Um, that's it. <laughs> Everything else kind of collapsed into a disaster because I had, um, I like, I almost got heat stroke. I had a medical emergency and it was just like a confluence of, um, bad, not, not just bad luck, but also just like my, uh, a health issue and, um, a series of unfortunate events. If I've ever experienced one, that's for sure. And so my biggest disappointment was, of course, that I, well, that I had to pull out of the project for the first time ever. Um, I've never had to pull out of a project before. And uh, it was a, it was a new and terrible experience because I just felt like a total failure. (laughs) And so that was, that was definitely hard. Um, It was definitely a humbling experience because I've always felt like, you know, I, I don't know if this sounds arrogant, but I've always felt like one of the more dependable field techs um, in all the studies I've been on. And, um, you know, being dependable and being precise, I think, are the most important things um, in this position. And um, you really just, push yourself. You're yeah, you're determined and persistent. Yeah, I do. And and it just so happened that I, I pushed myself too far this time and uh, went past limits that I didn't recognize at the time and ended up really hurting myself and having to pull out. And so that was like, ah, that was just such a bummer because I would, I, I was on it for three days and I actually learned a good amount, but there was so much more that, that I needed to learn. Um, in fact, after they, after, you know, that after the team left, um, there were a couple more sites that uh, Eric asked if I could survey um, while he was gone. And I, you know, I was, I was happy to do it at first, but there were, you know, there were delays because I don't have my own GPS unit. So he had to send me um, a GPS unit. Um, But there was like a lot of back and forth. Anyway, there were a lot of equipment delays and I'm actually glad that happened because it gave me time to rethink whether I should be doing this or not. And I decided in the end that I couldn't do these final surveys for him because, and I think I actually want to, I wanted to make a point of this um, because I just, not only was I not equipped, but even if I had been equipped, which we were working on, I hadn't received enough training. You know, I was only on, I was only there for three days and I could fill out the data sheet. I knew what I was doing. Uh, but you know, there's, there's knowing what you're doing and then there's being good at what you're doing. And, you know, for the first time ever, I, I felt like I'm not good at this. Like I didn't receive enough training and in my opinion, no data is better than imprecise data, especially when you're asking such, such important questions like, you know, the uh, occupancy of pica here in the Hemis mountains that nobody understands. 
Um, and I didn't want to. So in the end, I, you know, I had to tell Eric, like, I just don't feel like I can get precise data for you. And um, I think I'm just going to have to pull out of these further surveys as well, which was a bummer. But I, I feel good about my decision because um, even though emotionally it made me feel like even more of a failure and disappointment um, in terms of like the work, uh, I, I would rather not go out there and get him bad information because um, if I do anything wrong, that's that's just going to compromise the study. It's going to compromise his data as a whole, um, and it's going to mess things up. And I did want to make a point to say that that, that that's one thing you always want to consider is, um, you know, more data isn't it, it isn't inherently better, um, especially when when you take. I mean, it's better if it's precise data. But if it's not going to be precise, if it's not going to be accurate, it's it's not going to be thorough, um, then it's not better. You know, it's better to have less data. And so that was, I suppose I made that decision for him. <laughs> but, you know, that was my decision. And um, I think in the end, he, you know, he was, I mean, he was fine with it. I don't know what he thinks about that decision, um, but I felt good with that decision. Like, I just couldn't, I couldn't conscionably go out there and get him sloppy data. Not that it would have been sloppy because I'm sloppy, but because in three days I just hadn't received enough training. So, um, so yeah, so that's, that's kind of how it all ended kind of in a mess, kind of in a disaster. I nearly killed myself. Um, uh, so, but, um, we were talking earlier before we were recording. We are, we do plan on making an episode about this kind of thing. Um, just taking care of yourself in the field. Um, it's really important. Uh, you know, you, a, a dead con- conservationist is not, <laughs> not a very good conservationist, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So you have to take care of yourself as well as you take care of your tools. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's, that's what happened with that. And, um, you know, it's, it, it, it was a bummer, but it was also a, a really big learning experience for me um, in terms of um, not necessarily what I'm what I am and I'm not capable of, just what um, how well I'm supposed to take care of myself in order to be capable of what I think I'm capable of. So, um, yeah, so that that that's really important. And also just another point I want to make is, you know, if you're on a team, make sure you're watching out for each other because, you um, uh, I wouldn't have made it out of the last canyon I made it out of without um, without help from my my crewmates. Um, they really helped me on that final day that I was there, and I had that medical emergency. So, yeah. So just you know, take care of each other if you have a team, if you have the luxury of a team. Um, but yeah, so that's what happened with me. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I just want to add. We'll definitely talk about this more when we talk about when we do an episode on um, taking care of yourself in the field. But at least in my experience, with regards to taking care of yourself in the field, um, you often learn that lesson on being safe and taking care of care of yourself the hard way, mm-hmm. just like yeah. you did, just like I have multiple times. And I think it, maybe it's also just like a, <laughs> I mean, that's just like a general thing in life, right? You know, mm, yeah. young 
people often can do reckless and dumb things. I mean, not <laughs> dumb, but that's sort of yeah. like a stereotype. But um, as you get older, you, you take less risks because you realize like, it's not worth it. Like you said, if I die, then what's the point? Of <laughs> yeah. Like, what am I going to do the, for the pico if I'm dead? You know? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. I'm excited yeah. to talk more about that because, oh, the stupid things, lessons I've had to learn. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, uh, I guess, um, I had, I had a thought just a moment ago, but another question I wanted to us to answer oh um i guess what what i guess if you want to talk about um about (laughs) (laughs) if you want to talk about maybe one of your most interesting findings or i don't know something you'd like to share um yeah well i guess first let me just tell you how everything turned out um right of course yeah your turn um so i did not meet my objective of deploying five transmitters i currently have four transmitters sitting outside right now <laughs> because we only caught one stork um which is obviously better than none and it would have been horrible to go home empty-handed yeah. um so i'm very thankful that we caught one however um she hasn't checked in yet her unit hasn't <laughs> oh, <laughs> locations no. yet so whether that's a function of the unit not working properly or she's still in an area with poor coverage mm-hmm. because these units work off of cell phone towers, okay. um, which is a which was a risk that I had to be willing to take because these units are, you know, thousands of dollars cheaper than the GPS satellite ones. Yeah. So, you know, when she comes within range of a tower, it'll send all of the locations that it's been collecting ever since we put it out okay but there's just no telling when so it could be today could be in a month could be in three months um but because of the drought i mean it's there's a couple things so the drought made it very difficult for catching the birds and i'll explain that in a second but it also is going to make for interesting information because She's going to be forced to move because there's so little water left. And in Lua, the park, um, most of the water is probably going to be dried up in the next couple months. So she's going to be forced to move and we'll get to see where they move in these kind of conditions. But also she'll probably hopefully come into contact with, come within range of the cell phone tower. So I think once she starts to move, we'll get a download. Um, I'm just hoping that this reception is strong enough to like send all these locations because it takes hourly locations oh wow um because we just you know this is the first study if we're collecting information we might as well be collecting as much as we can from the start yeah. instead of regretting that we didn't have it as frequently before mm-hmm. um so we'll see i'm still checking on her um daily to see if there's been a download um but yeah the drought um really complicated things so not you know these are water birds so they depend on water because the things they eat are in water they're eating fish and um snails and whatever else um and then they do what will eat insects and stuff but so basically like i said the rains 
in Zambia come from like maybe November to May and Lua Plain should be inundated at that during that period. But they didn't it rained, but I was told that like there was maybe a few nights that it rained. Um essentially the rains didn't come. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and so all of the water that was there, you know, besides the little bit of rain they got was from last year. So fortunately last year was an extremely wet year. Actually the past two years there when I was there is in 2017 as well, extremely wet years. So there was a lot of excess water and that's probably one of the only reasons that there is still pools that have water in them now. Um, But there was not that much water. So we basically knew where all the water was, um, which you know, it was a blessing in disguise because then we can go to the, like, you, we knew if there's going to be saddle bills around, they're going to be at these water sources, at these pools. Um, but at the same time, it was not good because the fishing pressure from fishermen was significant. So, Lua Plain is kind of um, odd in that when it was established, people weren't kicked out of the park, which is, which I like because I think displacing people is, you know, just giving them the boot is wrong. But there's about 10,000 people that live inside this national park. Oh, wow. So it's not really that different from the area outside the park. Um, So there's a lot of Obviously, a lot of poaching pressure, especially in a year like this when there's so little water. But the you know all the fishing activity is con- was concentrated in the little water that was left. So not only were the fishermen just fishing the crap out of these pools and depleting it of prey for water birds, but they were also just basically almost on a daily basis disturbing our operation by you know when they come walking up, the storks see them and they take off. And so we learned that, you know, I wasn't quantifying this. I don't know how you would, but um, just from sitting for hours a day with these birds, um, that they're very sensitive to human disturbance. Um, You know, in a vehicle, they didn't really mind the vehicle. Most of them you could get pretty close. But when you're on foot, they take off. They have a pretty... um, large flight distance you know even when you don't have to get you can't get close um and also because there was so little water there wasn't that many storks left so there were probably in the beginning there were about 12 storks in what i considered our study area which was in a reasonable driving distance um so i mean the (laughs) the biggest question is where the heck did all these hundreds of other storks go? Yeah. Wow. Um, so the last time saddlebills were counted in Lua was in 2003. And they, from their aerial counts, they estimated about 315 storks occurred in the park. And none of, they haven't been counted since, but when I flew, we maybe flew about a third of the park. And it was easy because we could just look where there was water and go to these water to search for them. And we only counted about 40. So even if there were, you know, 150 in the entire park, it's a lot less 
than in the past. And so because there's so there's hardly any water left, they are forced to move. And who knows where the heck they move. Right. Um, I mean, I guarantee at some point by the end of this year, somewhere in the region, whether someone witnesses or not, there's going to be a large congregation of Sadabils. Because when you look at all the records, which I have done and have a paper in review, my first papers in review, um, it's clear that in very in drought years that there's people observe big gatherings like in some cases 85 to 100 saddlebills in one spot which is mental um so anyways who knows where they go um you know even along the zambezi floodplain i didn't see one which was very odd you know lots of other water birds and it there's a lot of human activity on the zambezi floodplain and that's why i suspect they're not there and it was interesting to see how these other water birds there reacted to the fishing activity so obviously when you know the fishermen come and they are walking around in the water setting up their nets the birds fly away but in some of the pools after the fishermen set up their nets and fished it and left the saddlebills never came back oh wow but other species did not as many um but and just, you know, with fishermen walking around, like I said, saddlebills were pretty intolerant and would take off. But other birds, you know, they didn't, they weren't so wary. They stayed at the pools. So it it's a suspicion that I've had, um, especially just from my observations in Kafui, but also from doing this paper looking at distribution. I think, and I, and I found in my analysis that their distribution is very closely tied to protected areas, to national parks. And I've suspected that, and that was my hypothesis going in, um, because I think they're sensitive to human disturbance, um, because I've only ever seen them in, you know, areas where there's no human activity. Um, I guess Lua is is an exception, but that's just because there's so much habitat and food there. So, um, and then, you know, the spotlighting technique did not pan out the way that I anticipated in the way that it was described to me. Um, I don't have the, I don't have the numbers right here with me, but I mean, I kept track of how many times we missed a bird, whether, you know, it flew off when we got close to it with the spotlight at night, or we also employed snares, like fishing line, a bunch of fishing line snares on a long piece of paracord. And I mean, these, we also learned that these birds are very smart. Um, They're always watching you. They're always listening. And, you know, we had up these snare lines in shallow water where they, where they were always going and they would, you know, we had these little floats to keep the snares, you know, floating in the water. And, they would, it seemed that they deliberately walked around them because they resembled these fishing nets that the fishermen put out. Uh So they'd be walking, walking, and then they'd just cut around them onto the other side. And so we didn't really learn that for almost a week. Mm -hmm. And then we decided to set up all of our snares in this 
area of shallow water and, and grass and without floats. And so then the snares blended in. And that's the only way, that's the one that we ended up catching. Um, it took four hours of them walking around, a, two, a pair walking around the snares before she actually stepped in and got caught. Um, but another thing we learned, again, there's no precedent, so how would we have known this? But, you know, we set, we find a place where they're they're forging consistently, and so we set the snares there. And after they've seen us set the snares there, they they don't go back. Mm-hmm. And whether that's them being smart or just our luck, I don't know. But, you know, we've realized that we need to find a place where no matter what, they're consistently coming back to forage. And this grassy area that we found, I mean, this pair was obsessed with it, basically. Um, and even when we pushed them off, when we left, because we sort of experimented, if we push them off, are they going to come back? And they did. And that's why we decided to set there, because we knew they would come back. But because of the fishing activity and because there's so little water left, that was the only case in which we found that where they would easily get pushed off and then come back right away. Um, yeah, I mean, we tried baiting them with fish. We bought fish off some of the fishermen and we just have fish eagles steal the fish. And, Ugh. um, yeah, it was, it was extremely frustrating. I mean, 12 hours a day of, attempting to you know snare these birds or catch them at night with a spotlight and a net and just figuring out what they're doing like we just would sit there and they're not super dynamic you know they spend (laughs) the mornings feeding and then they just go and find a place on the plane and just stand there or sit there for hours (laughs) and you know we would I mean, I felt bad a lot of times we were almost harassing them, but trying to push them, you know, towards the snares and eventually, I mean, they would never do what we wanted them to when we're kind of driving along behind them, kind of making them move. They'd always end up flying the opposite direction or, uh-huh. I mean, it was so maddening and, and discouraging. Um, you know, we didn't anticipate these problems, so we didn't have some equipment we could have used like know casting nets like fishing nets where you cast them Mm -hmm. people don't fish like that there they use gill nets and so if we had casting nets we could have probably caught more because at night we when we got close to them with the spotlight because we would get really close um you know we could have thrown it or sometimes from the vehicle we could get really close but basically it's come down to we need a net gun um I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Which is what we're going to use because... I've always wanted an excuse for <laughs> I know. And we could get pretty close to some of them in the in the vehicle. Yeah. And if we had that, we would have got more. And at night with spotlighting. Um, so my advisor has one. Nice. So the plan, the current plan is, the tentative plan, is to go back in December after the rains have started. So there'll be you know, more water and theoretically storks will be coming back. Um, there's a fishing ban that begins in December and then we'll have a net gun and, you know, hopefully be, we just need to catch four more to put these units out. That's the plan. That's the goal for December to just put these four out. Yeah. So I need to get a few thousand dollars for that. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah. It was, you know, 
a pilot season on a species that's never been studied. So yeah, I should be thankful that we caught the one we did. But it's kind of funny. A, a lot of the people because and we're just driving around desperately trying to find more and you know asking the people in the villages if they've seen any because everyone knows them there. Everyone knows Malambue is what they call them because they're so attractive and, and you know you people notice them and you know people were saying you know they'd come they'd see us we're still trying to catch them and they'd be like you haven't caught any yet oh we could have caught them by now blah blah <laughs> well show us how and also the big difference is we don't want them to be injured we're not trying to kill them yeah <laughs> <laughs> be easy if we were just shooting them <laughs> yeah <laughs> but That's um funny. yeah it was it was pretty crazy handling um, that bird. I'll share pictures of us, but um, it's a big, it's a big bird, and it was a female, and so she's not as big. As, the males are some of the males are significantly larger, um, but extremely aggressive. And one of my colleagues was injured, and um, yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, they're five feet tall and have a deadly bill. Yeah. And their feet, you know, who knows if they kick. Their feet are also delicate mm -hmm. and just, you know, keeping hold of it and, you know, putting on this backpack GPS unit. The anatomy is different than other birds. So it was kind of difficult, you know, just a big learning curve. Yeah. Um, but, man, it's, they're just so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine seeing one in person. I mean... That's really cool. It's so close. Like yeah. some of the ones, one of the ones we were spotlighting, it got, oh my gosh, it got so close. It was one of only two that was actually attracted to light. Like I was told they would be. And she just, we basically lured her out of the water. She came walking up onto the land. I had the net. I was right next. The one guy is holding the spotlight. Some guy I basically hired off the street. And then I have a net. And when that she got within range, I was going to put it over her head and then grab her. And I was just about to slap the net down on her. And the guy was like, you should do it now. And it, of course, it, him oh, no. saying that scared her. And for being such a large bird, you'd think they'd kind of have to run and take off. But in, a, in one second, they are in the air and flying oh, away. Wow. It's extremely yeah. impressive. And so I didn't even have time, you know, when he said that, wanted to wring his neck. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. That's frustrating. Yeah. So, yeah, just things like that. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah. Spent a lot of time. I mean, I, I not to boast, but I think I'm the world expert on Saddleville Storks at this point. <laughs> probably. <laughs> You're probably right. But, oh, yeah. I got to work for you now. The next world's expert that I get over. Yeah, yeah. Come and join. <laughs> you're you're the perfect height because they're not at like eye level to take out your eye. They'll go over your head. <laughs> that's true. They'd go right over me. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Oh wow. Well that's that's really interesting with the you know, especially I mean, obviously you, you know going knew going in ahead of time that water would be a big factor. Um and we kind of did too with the, with the pica, like Eric's had a longstanding um, theory that's, you know, been corroborated with data that um, 
pica occupancy in is driven more by water than by temperature. So, you know, a, a lot of the a lot of the research out there um, focuses more on on temperature and refugia and like um, how how well or or how ideal a particular talus patch is to um, a pica and you know which patch they'll choose to disperse in, especially. Um, and Eric has long felt that um, water is more of a deciding factor for them than temperature refugia. And um, the data we were pulling from these eye buttons, these little sensors that we that Eric leaves out there um, uh, that capture temperature and humidity. Yes, humidity exactly. And uh, we found that there, this especially this last winter, um, there was a lot of snowpack, and that definitely correlated with our occupied sites. Um, so we we found more evidence at the sites where there was snowpack. Mm. Um, so water, I think, I think Eric is discovering more and more uh, that water availability is, a, is an even bigger factor than than temperature. Um, for the, their choice of site. So, um, you know, interesting. it's all about water. You know, a lot of people don't think, I don't know, it's just this day, especially with, with climate change and with, you know, attempting to make the public more sustainable. You know, water is such a big factor, not only for us, but also for wildlife as well. So, um, you know. Yeah. And, you know, in, in my case with, um, this drought, it kind of showed in these kind of conditions, you know, if this is going to be more frequent with climate change in some areas, um, there's going to be a lot less surface water and that's what's, you know, predicted for a lot of, of Africa. Um, it's going to put saddlebills and other water birds into more direct competition with with people, with fishermen. And this is a, this was basically like a a little case study of, or a snapshot of what it could be like more and more often. And I mean, well, you know, when my, probably in like two years when my paper finally gets published, (laughs) we'll have to talk more about it, but there are places um, where, saddlebills have been locally extirpated because of overfishing and it's a difficult thing to quantify mm-hmm. um because there's way too little fisheries research going on in in Africa but um between a lack of water and overfishing it's just uh, not a good combination for a a water bird that feeds on fish yeah um so yeah, it's, you know, I didn't leave, you know, obviously having, you know, put out the first transmitter, tracking transmitter on the species ever. It's a, it's a really cool thing. Um, but that's not the only thing I walked away with, walked away with sort of this insight into what the situation could look like for the species more and more frequently. Yep. That's the importance of doing field work. I mean... Uh, modeling is important, but you you have to ground proof 
all yeah. that, you know, with field work. And that's, that's why it's important that we get out there. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So that's what we've been up to, everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, so next, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, well, um, you know, I'm about to, in a month, I'm about to start back to school in, in Texas. Um, so, yeah, I think we'll just, season two, this is season two of Contribution Chronicle. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think definitely we'll be doing, you know, an episode on uh, taking care of yourself in the field. I think it would definitely be fitting because it's summertime when people are yes. are out there. Um, mm-hmm. And then we'll, you know, keep bringing you the topics that uh, we think are interesting. <laughs> but people yeah. should let us know if there's topics that they want us to cover because we're totally, you know, willing. We We have a huge list of things, but we more often than not, like, keep coming up with new ideas before we even tackle that list. Yeah, that's true. Um, Because there's a lot to talk about. Yes. Yep. Always a lot to talk about. So, yeah, send us your ideas. Um, I Next episode, I also, well, if not the next episode, the following one, I want to talk about uh, what I'm doing with the Prairie Dogs. So stay tuned for that um, because there's some news there. And... Yeah, definitely send us your ideas. We have the email address. We'd love to get email. We've only gotten one listener email, but <laughs> we really enjoyed that. And um, <laughs> yeah, we know people are listening out there. We can see when yes. you download. <laughs> yes, yes, we know you're listening. So you know, it, no comment is too small or too big. Um, so yes, you can email us at conservationchronicles at gmail and I'm going to get everything else wrong. <laughs> <laughs> We're on Facebook at Conservation Chronicles and then also on Instagram, um, which we've been quiet just because we've been busy on this hiatus. But um, we'll get back in the groove. And I mean, if you, for ideas for episodes, if you want to send them, you know, if you haven't noticed, we sort of do different categories, different topics. So we do every once in a while, we do an endangered species. So if you have a species you'd like us to cover or you know, one that you really like that you don't think gets enough attention because, spoiler, we're not going to do rhinos and lions and <laughs> those species. Yeah. Um, or, you know, some conservation issue or something about the field. We try to we try to mix it up um, so that we're not, you know, doing the same types of topics each episode. Yeah. So help us stay fresh and creative because... Um, we have things that we think are interesting, but we want you guys to like what we're talking about as well. Yep. Um, yeah. Oh, and you can also um, listen to, if you are new to the podcast or you haven't listened to all our episodes. You could also find our episodes um, on our website, which is conservationchronicles.podbean.com or wherever else, whatever pod, podcast platform, bleh, podcast platform you use. Um, yes. you should be able to find us. Yes. And please leave a rating and review as well. We, we really want to know what you guys think about this podcast. If you want us to change anything or if you, you know, have any suggestions, but we can't see that until we've gotten enough ratings and reviews. Um, they're, they're hidden to us until we've gotten enough. So please do rate and review and tell your friends to do so as well. Cause we want to know how we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
thanks for listening.